0: For those of you who missed last week, uh, we had the opportunity to announce some cool stuff. And I just wanted to take a moment, because I know it takes us a couple weekends to get the majority of you up to speed on things. And so um, just real quick, for those that missed last week, we are launching some new, exciting projects around here. As you can tell, we've been growing. And a lot of stuff happens throughout here during the week, including youth group um, that is just packing out the lobby area. Next door, we have Building B, which is where our church office is in, and we do some Bible studies. That's where our middle schoolers head on over to. And uh, our tenant that's been in there, they actually were in there before we moved in. Um, So our tenant, their lease is expired, and they're actually moving and uh, moving offices, moving across to the other side of the valley. And what that gives us the opportunity to do is to build out the space next door. And so we are going to take those three middle units or the three end units and combine them into one really nice, larger, multi-purpose space that can be divided um, into three separate spaces for Bible studies, classes, and then for youth group and things like banquets and marriage events and those things, we can open them all up and combine them into one space. So it'll be a great space uh, to continue discipleship, not just for our church, but also um, for the community. And so we are excited about starting that here, hopefully within the next few months. And then also because the shopping center next door has sold a while ago, almost a year ago now, and we have a little change in our parking arrangement and agreement. I saw a bunch of you parking out on the gravel. Thank you. So we're we're glad you're doing that. And some of you are parking, taking one for the team, and parking like way down on the other side of uh, the old Safeway where we're supposed to, over there. But in the meantime, uh, we have submitted our final plans to the city to build out uh, the parking lot, and so uh, we plan to develop it and continue to make room for the people that God is drawing here uh, to meet him, to be discipled, to grow in relationship with him. And so in this process, we had the opportunity last week to to let you know that recently the church was able to pay off our debt. And so the church is debt-free. So that tells me there are a bunch of you here that weren't here last week. But we were able to do that. And so as we launched this new project, our heart and our goal is to do this completely debt-free. And so we've set a goal. We'd like to raise $250,000 above available funds in order to complete all this project, and uh, we're just going to take it as it uh, comes in, and uh, you know, move slow if we need to. But we're gonna we're gonna complete these pro- projects, and our goal is to be debt free. And so, if you have a heart to contribute towards this, uh, you can simply notate it, building fund, either online or in the black giving box in back. And if you have a heart to help invest in continuing to make this place a place that will reach generations for Jesus. Um, that's a simple way to do it. So thank you so much. Thank you for your faithfulness, your generosity. And uh, one other quick note. Uh, We are anticipating planning a little later this fall to go to two Sunday morning services, Um, but in the meantime, I know uh, it's getting a little tight uh, for some, so if you could do two things, number one, just be aware and try to create some space around you, sit on the ends or whatever, leave leave more space between you, and then try Saturdays. If you haven't been out to Saturdays yet, we'll even feed you and your kids pizza, Uh, so come on out. Try Saturdays, identical service, 6 o'clock Saturdays, and what we found is lots of people are like, well, that feels kind of weird, and they try it, and they love it, so maybe that'll be you too. Uh, All right. Hey, if you are new around here, we are launching back into a series in the book of John. Uh, We've been in the book of John for a while. We took about a six-week break. We preached through the book of 2 Timothy. If you missed that, you can catch up on our podcast or YouTube channel. And uh, as we dive back in here today, let me just ask you a question. Um, Have you ever known you were following God's leading, but Instead of things, I mean, you, you knew, you prayed, you sought God, and you knew you were following his leading, and you dove into a new direction, and a, or a new thing, and instead of everything like going great the way you thought, getting better, it actually got harder, it got more difficult. Maybe that was a new job, you, you dove in, you knew God was leading you to it, but you dove in and it was not what you thought. Or maybe you got married and you thought everything would just be rosy because you were in love, right? And that first year, you was like, oh my goodness, how do we do this? Or maybe you got really serious about following Jesus in your life after a season of not really following him. And instead of things getting easier, they actually got much harder. You actually ended up experiencing um, a real sense of uh, spiritual opposition in your life. And it was, ac- it, it was very difficult. You know, as a, as a kid, I remember growing up, um, we'd have missionary speakers come in. And uh, I always had this, like sense that maybe God would send me to Africa. And I was really scared because I'd heard about Africa. There were lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Right. And snakes. I did discover that later. Um, <laughs> but I, and so we had this one missionary speaker came to the church and like they did this altar call afterwards uh, where you would come up to the front and we had a card that was like, God, I will commit to go anywhere you call me to go. And I'm, I'm yours. And so I, I knew I was supposed to go tell God that and make that commitment. But I drop it in the box, like going, but please don't send me to Africa. There was actually a song when I was growing up, Please Don't Send Me to Africa. Does anybody remember that or just me? All right, a couple of you. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so what was interesting is flash forward a whole number of years. And in my 20s, God started changing my heart. And before you know it, I had this like passion to go to Africa and God confirmed, like, oh my like, God, am I supposed to go to Africa? He confirmed it in this really cool, uh, amazing way. And so I began to make plans and try to figure out how am I going to go to Africa? And I remember uh, this one day, we had this other missionary come in from Africa. He was an African missionary, ran an organization over there. And uh, I uh, had lunch set up with him, and I was all excited because we were going to talk about how I could go and work with him in Africa and make a plan. But God had other plans. And literally on that morning, right before I'm on my way to lunch with this guy, the phone rings and I get a phone call from a guy I hadn't talked to in two years. That two years previous to this had invited me to come join his ministry. And it just didn't feel right. He's like, okay, I'm going to call you in two years. And like almost two years to the day, dude calls me. <laughs> I pick up the phone and he's like, hey, it's been two years. You ready? And it's, I'm like, whoa, whoa, like I'm literally getting ready to go meet with this guy about Africa. But I just knew that that was what I was supposed to do. And I know that might sound weird to some of you, but sometimes in following God, there's times where you just know he's leading you and you have no doubt in your heart or mind. And I knew literally the next day I booked a one-way ticket. Now, this ministry that he was leading was actually a church planning ministry and, and they were headed over to Fiji. I know, you're like, oh, sounds rough, suffering for Jesus, right? (laughs) A couple weeks in in Oahu on the way, too, so that was kind of (laughs) cool. But I went over, I knew God was leading me over, I moved with them to Fiji, and I'm thinking tropical paradise, white sand beach, and I show up and it is like gloomy and cold and rainy, And I'm stuck on this mission compound, and I couldn't leave. And before you know it, I am more depressed than I think I've ever been in my life. I'm homesick. And looking back, I realized there was a significant level of um, spiritual warfare going on. There was a spiritual dimension I wasn't aware of at the time. I was facing incredible opposition in my life. And it was one of the hardest, hardest times of my life. In fact, I tried to leave. I've told you that story before. I'll tell it again some other time. And God broke vehicles. It was dramatic how he kept me there. I knew I, I knew I was where I was supposed to be, but it was so hard. I knew I had sought God and followed him, and yet I didn't know what was going on. And to be a little vulnerable for a moment, um, I, I can confess that in a lot of times in my life, I've, I've felt like that, kind of like, I'm walking in a fog, wondering, what is God up to? Why is this happening? God, I thought I was following you. Um, I see God come through and move just dramatically and so clearly in areas, and that yet there's other areas I'm praying about, and I don't see anything happen. And it doesn't feel like God's like moving in those areas. Have you ever felt like that? Do you, feel, do you ever feel like that? And when you do, when you're in those seasons, how, how do you walk through times like that while keeping your trust in God intact? In spite of the fact that you can't tell how it all fits together. How do you keep from getting better when you see God move dramatically in someone else's life? Maybe someone you prayed for, but you're praying about serious things in your life and things just aren't going your way. How do you keep from losing heart and end up conc- how do you keep from ending up concluding that God doesn't care or it's just all so random? Because I think that's really where people go. And so many times when, when you're in these situations, it's kind of like so many people talk themselves out of faith in those seasons. And they either like come to this place of going, it's uh, sort of a cold dead faith that acknowledges God. I call it functional deism where you acknowledge there's a God, but, but you, you really aren't living your life like he's alive and active and present in your life today. You're sort of like, yeah, there's a God. Uh, Or you just lose the sense of hope and faith and trust in the fact that he's good and he cares about you. How do you walk through those times without that happening in your life? And you know, if, if you have ever felt something like that, like I have many times, when you read scripture, what you see is we are actually in good company. Some of the early followers of Jesus experienced things just like this. One of them wrote this. He says, now we see dimly. And literally the Greek is like, now we see in a, in a foggy mirror, like you're trying to, you're trying to shave or, or do your hair and the mirror is just covered with fog. He's like, but then, but there's going to be a time when we see face to face, when we understand clearly, when we have a, a clarity in God's purpose and plan and our relationship with him. And yet what's so amazing is, is in the midst of that, like seeing through a fog and experiencing hardship, these early followers of Jesus, including this one that wrote that, the Apostle Paul, um, they experienced incredible hardship, incredibly difficult things, and yet they kept trusting in God. In fact, Paul at one point says this, and I think it's so powerful. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Isn't that inspiring? They had a faith, they had a trust that took them through. Paul and the other earlier followers of Jesus were able to keep their faith in Jesus in the midst of real hardship. Why? Because they understood something that we're going to see in this passage today. And that is that God has a purpose and a plan. God has a purpose. He is working out a plan. And God will work out his sovereign plan in and through those who truly trust in him. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to John chapter 11. And today we are beginning the second half of the book of John. And just to catch you up, if you weren't with us uh, to begin with or over the last few months, um, where we left off, the first half of the book of John is known by many scholars as the book of signs. And and what John's doing is he's, he's documenting these incredibly miraculous things that Jesus did that weren't just cool miracles, but they were signs meant to be like flashing road signs to the people of Israel that, hey, your Messiah is here. In fact, John, at the end of his book, will say, hey, Jesus performed many other signs in front of his disciples and other people. He performed many, many other signs, and I haven't recorded them here, but I've recorded these specific ones so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so the last time we were in John, uh, we saw the, the seventh sign. And seven is this, this uh, number very common in Jewish thinking of completion. And so the seventh sign, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after the dude's been in the grave for days. And this is so powerful. And they, this shocked them. This had never been done in, in history. This was a sign that they knew only the Messiah could do. And John puts it there, and John is trying to let us see that Jesus very clearly was like a flashing road sign. Very clearly, hey, here's your Messiah. Have you ever been like going through Glenwood Canyon and it's like, sorry, road closed ahead? And you're like, oh no, I gotta drive all the way around. You know, it's like a flashing road sign saying, hey, this is very important. Don't miss this. This is critical. And, that, and Jesus is saying, Your Messiah is here. Wake up, people. And so, right after this incredible miracle where Lazarus was raised from the dead, we see the response of the people and the religious leaders. In John chapter 11, verse 45, here's what it says Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So we see some believed and they trusted in Jesus. And and John uses the same word that is in John 3.16, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so he's saying some saw this sign and it did what the purpose of the sign was, to wake them up, to put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. But some didn't believe. That's the implication. What did they think? I don't know. Maybe they they told themselves, ah, it was just a trick. They had this whole thing planned ahead of time. They heard the rumors, but they refused to believe it. And they said they go and they tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders who constantly had it out for Jesus, they told them what happened. And see, I've noticed something about us humans is we can always find a way to be willfully blind to the truth right in front of our eyes. When something doesn't fit our agenda, when something doesn't fit the reality of what we want to be true, we can always find a way to be willfully blind to the truth right in front of our eyes. Jeremiah puts it like this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Which is why I always tell young ladies, like, listen up. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to your mama. Can I hear an amen from some mamas? (laughs) Because your heart doesn't always have your best interests at heart. (laughs) Your heart can be deceitful. Above all things. It draws us away. And we have the ability to be willfully blind because of our agenda, because of what we want so bad in our lives. He goes on in verse 47, it says this, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so these are the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin is kind of like, there were 70 leaders and it's kind of like maybe a combination of our Supreme Court um, that would like judge cases and stuff and the Senate kind of combined that would provide leadership to the nation. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They're terrified. And what's happening here, you see, um, this is actually the only time in all four of the Gospels that the Romans are mentioned specifically by, by name, although they appear all throughout. And in 63 BC, anybody remember Pompeii? High school history? Some of you? Not really. Probably most of you are like, no. And that's why I get to remind you of it. Uh, and some of you, your eyes glaze over, so just bear with me. Uh, so, 63 BC, Pompeii rolls through the Middle East, and Rome conquers all of this region, including Israel here. And they. Um, I mean, the primary motivation is, is control the, you know, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome and taxation, right? And so they, they put all these, they recruit local tax collectors because everyone loves a bunch of extra uh, tax collecting people, right? Um, so anyway, they, uh, they collect all these tax collectors, put them in charge and start taxing them on all these different areas. And there's all this tension In fact, there have been some uprisings, zealot uprisings. There have been some other people that that sort of tried to seize power and claim they were Messiah, and man, Rome just came in. They had legions up in Syria just a little ways to the north. They would come down and just squash these movements. In fact, on one day, thousands of rebels were crucified by the side of the road. And they said, man, if this kind of stuff keeps going on, one of these days, Rome's going to come in and they're not only going to, they're going to not just put down the rebellion, they're going to destroy our city and our temple. And you know what's interesting? Their fear was not completely unfounded because Jesus actually prophesied the destruction of the temple. And, and 40 years later, a little less than 40 years later, Rome rolls in because of a, a rebellion and ends up destroying the temple, just as Jesus prophesied. Stunning. Prophecy and fulfillment. But here in the next verse, you begin to see a little more of their motivation because it's not just, you know, altruistic care for their nation. There's something deeper going on here and it's their position and their power and their comfort. Uh, Verse 49, then one of them, Caiaphas. So Caiaphas was the leader of the Sanhedrin. He worked for 10 years right alongside Pontius Pilate and had managed to sort of um, accomplish an uneasy peace. They managed to sort of have an order in place, and the way the uneasy peace was set up, these, these religious leaders, the religious leaders and, and the Pharisees, these, these elite guys, um, man, they became really comfortable and really powerful and really wealthy. In fact, they, they mixed the, the religious and financial system in such a corrupt way that it, it allowed them to, to have a ton of money. Well, in the midst of it, they were losing the heart of the true worship of God. You remember Jesus coming in and flipping over the tables, turning over the tables of the money changers? So so this system had become corrupt in the midst of this. And so Caiaphas, he gets up here, and it says, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Apparently there was a big argument. Shh, quiet, guys. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you than one that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He says, enough arguing about what to do here. I've I've got a solution. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Better for you, you guys. See, the, the religious leaders, there's a deeper thing. It's not just the nation. it's their power, it's their comfort. It's their very comfortable, wealthy existence here. And as they're thinking through this whole scenario, man, they're thinking only in terms of, like the physical reality of here and now, the political dynamic. They're thinking about losing comfort, power and wealth. They like their comfortable little kingdom that they've built here, even though Rome is still the oppressor. They are large and in charge in their little area. And so Caiaphas makes this cynical, self-serving statement that says, I am willing to sacrifice the life of an innocent man. I mean, what had Jesus done? Healed a bunch of people? (laughs) But he crossed the line. He raised someone from the dead. And they knew if this keeps going on, man... The news of Jesus will just keep spreading and spreading. And before you know it, the city will be like it and we're going to lose everything we've worked so hard to gain. I think a good lesson here is be careful of how much you hold on to your small, K, little kingdom. Be careful how much your kingdom has a hold on you. The things of right here and now, be careful how much they have a hold on your heart. Because if you're not careful, they will capture, capture your heart, and you will miss out on the flashing road sand that, hey, God is doing something right in your midst, and you're missing it because you're so focused on this that you're missing what he wants to do through your life for, the, for his kingdom, for his purposes. You're just focused on the busyness, on the distraction, on the comfort. So Caiaphas says it's better for one man one innocent man, to die for the nation. And John sees a bigger picture in the midst of this. John says, oh, man, Caiaphas said something profound here, and he didn't even know it. John says this, verse 51, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. In the midst of his cynical, self-centered statement, in the midst of all of that, and remember, just just about a week later, they would go on to incite the people to to yell, crucify him, crucify him. They would present false witnesses, and they would go on to crucify Jesus. In the midst of all that cynical, self-serving, John says, no, no, there's something deeper at work. He didn't know. But he was literally prophesying exactly what was going to happen, that yes, one innocent man was going to give his life for the nation, but not in the way they thought. It wouldn't be just for the nation. John went on to say there's a bigger thing God's doing. And verse 52, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. The scattered children of God. The people, all the, all God's kids who haven't come home yet. All God's kids from other places and nations that haven't come home yet. In fact, Jesus says this, just the, la- the previous chapter in John, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And see, up to this point in history, the Jewish people have thought, hey, we are the chosen people, the one true people of God, which was what? True. God chose to work through this one nation, but God is getting ready to institute a new covenant where all will be invited in. This is the bigger thing that he is about, and John recognizes that. In fact, the apostle Paul, writing later about this, would call this the mystery of Christ, like something we hadn't seen. But when you go back and you look in Isaiah and the prophets, man, it's all over back there. That that there'll be a day when not just the Jewish nation, but all people will be invited into relationship with God and forgiveness, the new covenant. I'll remember their sins no more. The, The apostle Paul writes about this. He calls it the mystery of Christ. Here's what he says about it. He says, this mystery is that through the gospels, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. It's this promise that you and I can be adopted into God's family. We can be crafted in to his people. You can have relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Yes, he died for this one nation, but he died for all the scattered children of God that have yet come home. Beautiful. In fact, he goes on. He says this in verse 12. He says, in him, this is uh, Paul, this isn't on the screen, but he says, in him, in Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, you don't you take that for granted. In fact, in so many areas of our culture, it's so interesting. We've, we've gone to this place where before we were in this place of awe and reverence for God. We've gone to this place now where it's like, well, I don't know, how could God be good because of this or this? We've gone to a place of actually judging the character of God in our, in our culture. But in ancient times, man, the people feared the little G, gods. They feared them. In fact, even Israel had to come to the one true God through the sacrifices of bulls and rams. But in this new work Jesus is doing, in the new covenant, as he's preparing to pour out his blood on the cross, when he cried, it is finished, something powerful and profound happened the veil was torn in two. It wasn't just a symbol. It was a symbol of a reality that now you have the ability to have a relationship with God simply through faith and trust in Jesus and in the finished work that he accomplished when he died and rose again. You can draw near to God. Approach him with freedom and confidence. You don't understand how powerful that is, but it's so powerful. It changed history. In fact, Paul prays a prayer for you and I (laughs) because of the reality of this. He says, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ? If you ever wonder where the song, hmm, and hmm, hmm, that's where it comes from. Do you remember that? No, just me. Okay. We got a VBS kid here. All right. (laughs) And he goes on, he says, and to know. So this incredible love, how wide, how deep, how far, you can't even comprehend it but I want you to sort of grasp this in your spirit and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Don't think you can understand this love just in your brain. To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God that anyone who places their, true, their trust in Jesus has eternal life, that you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have the opportunity to live a life that's being filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by his power and his love and his joy in your life. And John sees this in this verse. He's like, man, you have no idea. Caiaphas says, it's better that one man can die. He's cynical, he's self-centered, but even in the midst of his agenda, God has a bigger purpose and a bigger plan that he is working and he is accomplishing. And that is the eternal salvation and the inclusion and the redemption of all who would believe. In verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his, Jesus' life. So wait a minute. He just healed the guy, for, like all these guys, right? And fed the 5,000, and, and now he's raised a guy who has been in the grave for days. Nobody could do that. Only Messiah. They knew this. This was their own tradition that taught this. They knew no one else could do this. And yet, because of their agenda and their plan, they plot to kill Jesus. They put out a warrant, we'll see in a minute, for Jesus' arrest. And just a quick little side note. There's incredible, like, extra-biblical, outside of just the Bible, evidence of Jesus, and this is we've discovered in history an ancient Jewish text that describes the arrest warrant that went out before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And they accused him of blasphemy. And it goes out. It says this arrest warrant went out through the land um, where they proclaimed it. And they told people, hey, if you see Jesus, let us know. Because there's a warrant out for his arrest. Pretty cool. It's in the Sanhed- writings of the Sanhedrin in the Talmud. All right, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Now, notice this. Jesus withdraws. Why does he withdraw? God's got a purpose. God's got a plan. Nobody can touch Jesus. Remember the guards when they come up to arrest him? We'll see this whenever we get to the end of this book. Um, They literally fall down. He's like, I am he. And boom, like the power of God knocks him down. Nobody can touch Jesus. And yet in the midst of this, he understands that God has a purpose and a plan, and he is led by the Holy Spirit. He is led by God, and he follows the timing of the Father. He is focused on his mission, and he will not allow anyone or anything to interrupt his mission. The focal point of history is about ready to come to conclusion. On the Passover, which is coming up, The next week, when he will give his life. He says, I give my life away. No one takes it from me. I willingly give away my life. And he's not going to let anyone's agenda hijack his plan. And because of that, he withdraws because he knows the situation here in Jerusalem is getting out of control and out of hand. And he will and he's listening to God. I think this is so powerful. Because Jesus was not reckless in his mission. He followed the leading of the Father and and discerned the timing of the Father. He was wise. Uh, Even in his, you remember his temptation where Satan was tempting him right at the very beginning of his ministry and said, hey, you're the son of God. Throw yourself down from the temple. Obviously the angels will catch you. And what did he say? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. He understood there's a bigger principle. I am not going to short circuit the mission God has for me. Yes, it's going to involve pain. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve giving everything and taking the weight of the sin of the world on my shoulders and dying an unthinkably painful death for humanity but I'm going to walk through that. I'm going to look for God's purpose, God's plan. Because of that, he withdraws and waits. And let me just say, for you and I, as we follow God, following the fact that God is sovereign, he has a purpose, he has a plan, he's working it out, doesn't mean that you are to live your life in a reckless fashion. See, I think people tend to one extreme or the other when it comes to following God. The one extreme is this sort of emotionalism when it comes to seeking God. And they just like, well, God's in control. And so I'm just going to do this dumb thing. God will work it out. And they find themselves in a world of hurt and pain. Because, yeah, God will work it out in his big plan and his big scheme. Um, but you still have free will. And he calls you to make wise choices. And he calls you to follow him and to seek him and to follow his lead. He calls you to walk with him, to live the way he would call you to live, and you will avoid much pain and heartache if you do. And yet, even in the midst of that, sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you followed God and and you still don't know. Like, okay, I know I was following you. Now, what do I do? And in the midst of that, you trust him. You trust him. Because the other side is people usually go to is sort of this dead, cold religion thing of, well, those guys over there are crazies, (laughs) over emotional crazies. And over here, I'm very, I don't really seek God. I don't really pursue God. I don't really expect God to show up in an active, powerful way in my life. And it just turns into dead religion. And there's no life in it. And you miss out on some of the things that God wants to do with you because you're not seeking him in the moment you're in. It's about trusting him, seeking his guidance, staying in the word so you know what wisdom is, so you know where he calls you. I harp on this all the time. It's a value we have around here. Biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. That you're serious about getting in the word and understanding what the will of God is for you and for life. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, the the Pharisees knew the scriptures better than anywhere. In fact, at spot Jesus says, um, you search the scriptures and yet you refuse to come to me and all the scriptures are writing about me. See, there's an openness and you you need to be in the scriptures and you need to be leaning into the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Holy Spirit in prayer, listening to his voice, obeying as he shows you the way to live your life, as he calls you to take a step of faith and a risk for him, as he calls you to to be part of his bigger plan, to move into an area to, to focus your life around his bigger plan. To understand that life isn't about you, that it's about his purposes and his plan and to step into that and to take a risk and to allow yourself to feel awkward by speaking to others and sharing your faith and praying for others. Taking a risk when he calls you to step into it, not reckless, but because you know he's leading you to step into this direction. And when you know that you know, Man, you, you jump, right? You step in. You, you say, God, what I have is yours. My life is yours. Verse 55, when it, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, arrest warrant, that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So as we see, Jesus moving into the last week leading up to the cross. He's moving resolutely in the direction God's calling him to. And think about his disciples All of a sudden, this thing that has been going so incredibly is turning sour. They recognize this. Now there's an arrest warrant out for Jesus. Now they're in hiding up north, 12 miles. And they're wondering, what's the plan here? We didn't sign up for this. We thought this was going to be... I mean... Our picture of, you know, following being with the Messiah was he was going to start an army and then we were going to be the generals. Like, remember the two dudes? Can we be on your right hand and left hand? We want to be the most powerful dudes and we're with the king. We have a picture of how our life is supposed to be going and all of a sudden they're part of something. It isn't going the way they planned. And what we're going to see over the next few chapters of John is that Jesus is going to reassure them in the upper room This is all part of God's plan. Yeah, it's going to get really hard and really dark for a while. But God is working his plan. He's working his purposes. And and guess what? They wouldn't understand it till after the resurrection. In fact, they would all run away at his crucifixion. And when it comes to the plan of God, I've noticed in so many people's lives, you often don't see it till afterward where you look back and you go, oh, that was what God was doing. You know, in my, uh, my whole Africa-Fiji thing, um, years later, I found out that this, this missionary I almost went to Africa with um, ended up being a crook, had a wife in Africa and one here, was embezzling money. God rescued me from being part of that situation. Literally the morning of, had no clue at the time. All I knew was I was in Fiji and I hated it. I think oftentimes that's the way it is with biblical prophecy too. (laughs) I know that because they didn't recognize Jesus until afterwards they went, oh. The disciples this week, man, it would be the hardest week in their lives as they saw their Lord, their Savior, crucified before them and laid in a tomb. They thought game over. They thought Satan had won. But what Satan saw as a victory, ended up being his ultimate defeat. What what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good so that you and I could be included in his people and his kingdom and his family so that his redemptive purposes could be accomplished on this earth. God will work his sovereign plan in and through those who trust him. He will. I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close here in just a moment in the song. God will work his sovereign plan in and through those who trust him. Are you aware that he is, he is moving in this world around you? He is working a plan to redeem humanity? That he wants you and he has placed you in specific places To be a light for him, for his kingdom. To show the joy and the hope of Jesus in the place you're in. To draw others to him. To influence culture around you. And bring the light of Jesus and his kingdom into it. Are you aware of that? Or are you just focused on your own agenda and not even aware that God is doing anything around you? Man, so many times we are distracted. Distracted and self-focused. Ask him, invite him to open your eyes to what he's doing around you and then respond to his Holy Spirit as he invites you into that. Maybe you're in that place where you followed him, you stepped into what you thought was him and you, you actually, you would say, I know God led me. And yet things are not where you wished or hoped or wanted them to be in your life right now. Are you gonna trust him? Trust that he's good. Trust that he is working out his plan in the midst of the chaos and the fear and the agendas around you. When you feel like it's out of control, maybe when you look around at culture and feel like, man, everybody's walking away from God. Will you trust him, stay connected to him, and trust that he is working, that he's still in control? When you don't understand why, why am I going through this? Will you still walk forward? trusting him. Would you stand? As we get ready to sing here in just a moment, uh, John has a realization that what's happening here is a bigger plan and purpose, and it's that all the scattered children of God might come in to the family. And perhaps you're here and you... You felt something drew you here today. I think that's God. And his bigger purpose and his bigger plan is that you could come into his family. That you would be part of his fold. That you would have relationship with Jesus. And how you do that is through faith and trust in him. Trusting in the finished work he accomplished for you on the cross as he died and as he rose again. That you would find that life and fullness of life in him. And if that's you here, maybe online, I want to invite you right now to pray a prayer like this. There's nothing magic about the words. It's just a prayer that expresses your heart to Jesus. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. If that's you, pray after me something like this. Lord Jesus... I need you. I can't make it to God on my own. I trust fully in the finished work you did for me on the cross. Forgive my sins. Rescue me. Save me. Welcome me into your family. I want to be part of your family. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live my life for you. I want to turn from my old life and follow you in a new way. Thank you, Lord.